Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the FB Advisor podcast. This week, we are discussing the latest developments in China and what they might mean for investors in the region and for the wider economic outlook. I'm David Thorpe, Special Projects Editor at FT Advisor. China's rise through the ranks in recent decades has seen it become, by some measure, the largest economy in the world. While investors around the globe have had an increasing opportunity to invest in that growth, but recent interventions by the Chinese government in the activities of tech and education companies sent some stocks into a tailspin and caused many fundamental assumptions about the investment case for the market to be questioned. But what are the long-term consequences? Joining me today to discuss the topic are Mark Williams, Emerging Market Equity Fund Manager at Somerset Capital, and Abby Chatterjee, Chief Investment Strategist at Investment Research Provider Dynamic Planner. Mark, amidst all of the events that have been going on in China and in real estate and education and media sectors, we've also had uh, red lights flashing around a property company called Evergrande. What are your What are your thoughts on that and the potential uh, wider impact on emerging markets or indeed on the on the global economy? Well, I think this is a, a very important thing in China. Our view, and to put this in context, Evergrande is a very highly leveraged company which is unable to service its debts. And part of that has come about because China deliberately, as a policy, wanted to rein in the lending that has been made to property in general. So in terms of the levels that banks are lending to developers, there have been limits placed on that. The government has deliberately tried to clamp down on some of the more speculative elements within the property sector. And Evergrande looks like it will be one of the casualties of this clampdown. So this was to some degree government initiated, I would say. And for me, the most important things is, first of all, it seems very clear that a company as large as Evergrande, um, the government wants it to fulfill a lot of its obligations. So within China, a large number of properties have already been paid for by the end consumer, the property purchaser. And I think it seems very clear that the government is going to make sure that those developments are completed. And what it wants beyond that, I would expect, is an orchestrated winding down of the company. So it will have to be divided probably into three parts, my understanding is. But what they don't want is to allow the issues at a credit level to become systemic. And my view on China is that it actually has the capabilities to do this. So there was a bond payment of 84 million US dollars due on Thursday, which doesn't seem to have been paid. I don't think this company will be bailed out. But equally, if you look at what's happening in some of the credit indices within China, it doesn't seem as if there's any real contagion coming through into the broader market at the moment. And that's very important. So the scale of this will be big. But if you look back in 2019 in May, there was a bank called Baosheng Bank, which went under, and that wasn't expected. So Evergrande, we've known that there have been issues for some time. Um, Baosheng was more of a surprise. And there, although the debt was less, 300 billion, 
it had a larger number of counterparties, 700, and it was still managed. And so I think that is what the government will be aiming at. And I think that is the most likely outcome. So there will be some knock-on effects. There's a large amount of property um, which will have to be sold on to others. Um, the scale of Evergrande was enormous in terms of, um, I think it was 1.6 million people had uncompleted um, properties that they'd already paid for. There were 1,300 developments that Evergrande is engaged in at the moment. So the scale of these things is vast. It will take time to unwind. And obviously, in some areas, there will be significant losses with these properties having to be sold on and maybe no end demand for them. But overall, we think it's unlikely for this to become anything that is financially contagious because China has proven able to do this and it is gearing up. It has been appointing people um, to be able to sort out the credit issues. Yes, there will be huge losses for the creditors, but ultimately, this is what I believe we want to see in China. We want to have companies allowed to fail. We want those failures to take place in a way that they don't become a systemic risk, but they do allow capital to be priced efficiently. And for a high risky developer, such as Evergrande, there should be um, you know, a, a, an enormous risk factored into the credit. And that's something that in the previous decades we've been missing in China. So overall, I think this will be a difficult process. It will be a slow process. But as long as they manage to contain it, which I do believe they will, I think the outcome will actually be positive for China over the medium term. Thank you, Mark. And just to follow up on, on that question, you, you've mentioned that you, you don't see, and we haven't seen really, uh, a contagion effect within the financial system, either within China or within the rest of the world. But could we see a material impact on on Chinese uh, GDP uh, growth uh, for the year as a, as a result of this. Uh, lots of people appear to have been in some sort of wealth management project product uh, from these guys, which, which may not have been uh, uh, a particularly rewarding investment. And if we have Chinese GDP slow, does that percolate through other emerging markets that were reliant on, on Chinese demand? I mean, that, that's a good question. At the moment, China still has a number of levers that it could pull or push to enable growth to accelerate. And it is not, as far as I can see, using those at the moment. So you're already seeing a deceleration in Chinese growth, obviously from a sharp rebound from the, what went on last year, but definitely quarter on quarter coming down. And you are seeing an impact internationally already. If you look at iron ore prices, you know, they have fallen very significantly. So there are clearly, as you've pointed out, impacts from what happens in China, and they do go across its borders to some of the nearer neighbours. Equally, mortgages at the moment, my understanding is in China, are fairly slow to actually be released. So whereas historically these things have been much faster, there seems to be a deliberate will to again try and rein in speculative pressures in property market. And some of these things could be eased up. Access to mortgages, um, either in terms of second mortgages or even the, the levels of um, pay down ratios could be increased. Interest rates could be lowered. There are things that if the government, I believe, was concerned about this and wanted to try and re-accelerate the economy further, it could do. 
but it seems at the moment it doesn't feel the need to do that and it seems at the moment that it's more focused on reducing some of the excesses that it seems to have believed have built up in the economy but in terms of regulation that equally seems to be going along similar lines they are looking to rebalance their economy slightly to make sure that investment allocation of capital is done for greater common prosperity across the board and i would say this and the leverage that has built up in property as a speculative area is one part of that so i believe that if there is a real need china can attempt to reaccelerate the economy and it's not doing that at the moment um commodities yes there may be and has been an impact um beyond that i think the consumption of china isn't going likely to be that widely or broadly impacted i mean you mentioned wealth management products yes those are a concern yes the investors in these um development projects if they aren't successful if they are completed more slowly clearly that's an impact to them in terms of the creditors although it is a manageable amount there will be pockets where people or corporates are much more impacted than others so there will be impacts because a credit event like this inevitably has to have losers if the entity isn't bailed out but for us the most important thing is when we're looking at stocks avoiding those bits that are impacted and then trying to factor in whether this is significant for the broader growth in companies that we like in china and we don't currently think that that is going to be the likely outcome we don't think china's overall growth tra- trajectory is going to be particularly impacted by this thank you for that mark and abby uh, as mark touched on there has been a wider regulatory uh crackdown uh within within china and that has also spooked markets a little bit could you perhaps um elab- elaborate on on what what's been happening there and and what you think is behind it all so what has been going on in china is that we've been noticing rumblings of fund of companies which were going for listings being stopped then there was uh, the attack the restriction on the cult of personality then two words which are being ha- heard quite often by the uh, premier's speeches called common prosperity uh, so what has been happening is there has been crackdown on companies internet companies mainly which have access to a lot of data and are becoming very very big and dominating the uh, the economy so people like jack ma and and the others are becoming superstars in their own right and there is play to control them in to rein them in so that they do not become adverse to the to the party in, as such and also there has been a great divide between the high earners super earners and the common population so this common prosperity is a, a two words which have been repeated over and over again it is has been in uh, there within the chinese uh, mindset from a long long time from mao zedong reiterated by deng and everybody and at the end of the day it is a socialist country at the end of the day so bringing people bridging the gap between uh, social standards of people is important for them so this is the first salvo we are seeing being played out in by the government and the party in bridging that gap and ensuring the common prosperity so and the effect that has had as it has sent 
mixed signals out into the society into investors on one side investors are becoming wary as to when where does this end and what is the long term implications of that but at the same time there is uh, we as investors cannot keep out of in a market like china given its demographics and its 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 sphere so it is a mainly a case of yes we want to invest in these companies but at what time and how is the bigger question thank you um mark um at somerset capital i'm, I'm sure you're looking quite closely at uh, events in in asia and in emerging markets as a whole and um, we've had a a rundown from Abby around around what's happening, but to take it a little bit downstream, what what does it mean for for you as an equity manager? I think for us, one of the interesting factors um, when you look at the regulatory changes is that what the government is trying to achieve, as Abby has already referred to, isn't that new. So we've been investing in Asia, in China for a long time now. And property is one thing where regulation has stepped up significantly recently. But that's something that the Chinese government has always use, used as one of their levers for growth. And so if you look at it under those means, or if you look at what's going on in other areas, maybe the way they're approaching gaming at the moment, we've seen that already in Korea about a decade ago in terms of trying to limit the amount of children's use online during the days. Equally, some of the pharmaceuticals and pricing there, we see that elsewhere in the world. So what we think is happening is not that there's a particular change in what is trying to be achieved by regulation, but if you look at the way DD was approached, so that's the ride-hailing app, which listed in the US, and then within two days, the regulator announced it was being investigated for its usage and protection of data. So again, that's not something that any other country in the world is, is not struggling with, how data is protected, where it's held. But what marked a sea change there was the fact that the regulator, the Chinese regulator, was willing to come out with this so shortly after it had listed. And it had listed in a foreign exchange. So we've seen things before we don't necessarily like in the A-share market that the regulator is doing but not something where there was as big an impact on foreign investors. And that we weren't entirely sure it marked a, a potential change, but equally it could have just been badly handled um, by the regulator. But then with what happened to the education names on top of it, so after that, over a weekend, after school education was effectively labelled or told it had to become a not-for-profit area of the economy. And that obviously is a huge impact to the investors. And again, a lot of that was overseas investment. So to my mind, what this has done is it's shown a certain lack of regard for international capital currently from the Chinese point of view. And that gives greater risk. But equally, as Abby also pointed out, the Chinese market is very broad. It's very deep. There's plenty of opportunity in there and it's of increasing importance. So for us, what this does is it makes us maybe more aware of where the government is directing the common prosperity, the positives for its overall population, which is what they seem to be trying to achieve. They want asset or capital allocation in areas that will benefit the overall economy. 
And that means we have to be very, very careful that the investments we make are aligned with the government. And I think the recent events have shown that maybe the risks of being in areas that aren't aligned with the government are greater than we previously thought. So for us, it slightly narrows the pool for us to invest in. It slightly increases the risks, but it certainly doesn't remove all opportunity. We think there's still plenty of opportunity in the Chinese market. Thank you, Mark. So um, going by those comments, you think that recent events aren't really a a one-off, but that this is the beginning of a a new normal in the way Chinese businesses are regulated or or interact with with the state. Um, If that's the case, um, does that change the long-term risk premium that one needs to invest in Chinese uh, companies? I mean, I would say it potentially changes the long-term risk premium, but you've already had a pretty big sell-off. And things like that, I think, get factored in very quickly. Um, as to whether it's a new normal, I think regulation in China and probably elsewhere tends to be cyclical to a certain degree. And you are seeing a concentration of regulatory impact at the moment. So I think that there will this will be ongoing, I believe. All these areas that I've mentioned recently, and there are others as well that are potentially going to be targeted, are things that fit within China's long-term policy, and they're things that they have stated numerous times they would like to address. And again, the, the phraseology is different for the common prosperity. I think I only really saw it beginning to latch on in January. But that means that there will be an ongoing regulatory impact there. Yes, you could argue this is the new normal. But equally, when China achieves what it wants to, one of the other areas we haven't really talked about is um, the financial institutions. Since the financial crisis, China has been terrified about what was going on in the shadow banking sector. Um, The way it's addressing um, tech finance is just an extension of that to my mind. They don't want over leverage. They don't want poor allocation of capital and of savings. And so it's not surprising that um, when Jack Ma highlights the fact that he will be operating within finance outside of any regulatory regime, they clamp down on that and make sure that these things are addressed. So yes, those areas, I think they will continue to increase control and that the levels of control, I think, that the Chinese Communist Party, the government themselves want, is greater than maybe we expected or maybe that we saw prior to Xi Jinping strengthening his overall oversight of the country. Um, but again, the areas aren't particularly different, I don't think. Thank you. Um, Abby, from, from your point of view as an investment strategist, do you think that uh, Chinese equities now do... Uh, require or come with a higher risk uh, premium than was than was the case in the past. And do you see this as a, a new normal that, that we could, markets could wake up any day to discover another sector of the Chinese economy uh, where a significant policy action has taken place? Mark has been on the button on this and in, in, in saying that the, the, the regulation tends to be cyclical and it kind of ebbs and flows along with its the formulation of the central policy. Uh, and we have seen this happen time and again. In, in, in the past, it was the cultural revolution. It is happening. And, and we have to remember that Jing is a child of the cultural revolution. So it's there in his mind. And what I, what I feel that it is a, not a one-off. It will be 
a feature of the regulation will be a feature of how you know, china regulates its burgeoning industries on the high, especially the high tech world and uh, every and everybody in china is trying to get into the mode of uh, of uh, these high tech companies and and they're being hired a lot and so that that's the way of controlling it, in addition to this i also think that chinese uh, the chinese government and the central party especially have been trying to shift the economy from being a seller of products to a consumer based economy and the only way they can really become a consumer based economy is is if everybody uh, across the board this consumption across the board and not in very concentrated hands this is uh, another way of doing that i think that, that that to shift resources and allocation in such a way that the uh, the uh, consumption is more more broad based uh, you will see in the wake of all this uh, happening all the regulations coming out and happening the spate of donations to charitable causes and has just increased which is a way of uh, repurposing wealth into multiple hands uh, how long that will continue is a, is a matter of debate and question and and how the policy flows but it, it must also be seen from the view of uh, increasing the consumer pattern changing the, the the face of the economy from being a seller to a consumer are we at this stage now uh, in in your view abi where events in china matter significantly to the rest of the world it used to be said that when the us uh, uh got a cold everybody else got sick are we at that point with with china yet in your view or or can this just be a, a self-contained emerging markets or indeed just china story uh, i doubt that we can say that about the chinese economy anymore that uh, they are self-contained china is going to be the biggest global economy in the world and and uh, it it is it, it, the resource hungriness of the of the economy it, it has it will affect across the world so if there is something which is going on in china which may be uh, which may be have fallout that that will have to be monitored but you'll also have to remember that this is a economy which is very strictly controlled for example if you look at everglade that you know, the housing uh, company which had 300 billion dollar of debts and was about to default there were negotiations which were held and that was managed so uh, the chinese economy may be opening up but there are certain strict controls and everything put in place because as mark alluded earlier they are terrified of 2008 happening in their country and they will do whatever they can to manage it and if a 2008 scenario occurs in china we can be rest assured it's going to spread very quickly across the, uh, across the economy and uh, and i think the impact will be far greater than just what happened in in 2008 because it will affect emerging markets and developed markets across the whole we are looking at china as a growth sector we they they are the engines of growth china and india are the engines of growth so if that falters we are in for trouble in the long haul thank you um mark would you like to to and to that is do, do you notice as an emerging market investor that uh, events in in china really determine what happens to other emerging markets in the short term and do you see ripples around the rest of the world as well i mean yes definitely china's importance has increased significantly if you look at the number of countries that have shifted from the us being the number one destination for exports to china 
It's huge. I mean, this happened with Korea well over a decade ago, I think more like 15 years ago, and other countries, it's equally the case. And when we look at emerging markets, particularly Asia, what's really important for us is that Asia is no longer just a source of supply, but it's as much a small source of end demand. And that goes across the world. It will impact the rest of the world. I think, luckily, China, its debt is very much domestic. And so I agree with Abby. They've got a huge process to go through when they're looking at effectively replumbing their financial system. But that, I don't think, is likely um, to become global if there is a financial in crisis, which definitely I don't think is a likely outcome because of the controls they have over that. So I think financially, it's maybe relatively isolated. But in terms of demand and also exporting some of its production, you see this with the One Belt, One Road policy. Around the region, China's influence is growing. You see it with politics, um, whether it's the US's approach to China or the rest of the countries around and involved in the South China Seas. It's impossible to get away from the fact, to my mind, that China is an increasingly significant player on every global stage. And so if there is a falter either politically or maybe more importantly, um, with growth economically, then there will be an impact on a significant part of the rest of the world. But for the latter, the economics, I think that is more centered around the rest of Asia before it spreads to the rest of the world. Thank you, Mark. And just to follow up with you for the for the next question, if as you and Abby have very uh, articulately highlighted the sort of economic and, and big picture impact of uh, events in China, but at the more granular asset allocation level, what lessons can um, can we take from events in China? And what do they mean for investing in China? And what do they mean for investing in broader emerging markets? Well, I mean, I think the biggest lesson from this is maybe it was a wake-up call or reminder that emerging markets are called emerging markets for a reason, and China was an emerging market. And what that means is that there are certain elements of risk within those markets. And I personally feel this is something that maybe people forgot, as particularly with the huge weightings that there were in some of the internet names they just continued to grow. And you know, the likes of Tencent, Alibaba, they are fantastic companies. They are limitlessly scalable. They create huge profits. So there's a reason for that. But at the end of the day, they're called emerging markets because there are risks inherent in them that you don't necessarily get in developed markets, or there are different risks to those that you get in developed markets. And we talk about what's going on in Venezuela, maybe Argentina, Brazil on a political level, and everyone expects it. And I think when people looked at China, they didn't really see that. So I think the lessons for this are twofold. One, there's, there's a reason why China potentially should trade at a discount. A lot of the companies in China, as it turns out, whether they're internet names or state-owned enterprises, this idea of common prosperity means that they're not operating purely for the benefit of minority shareholders. It doesn't mean you can't be aligned in the ways that we've talked about earlier, but you have to be very careful because there are other remits at play. And that is something that has to be factored in, whether it's through 
the structure of the shares through the VIE structure, or just the profitability and the acceptance of that by the Chinese government. And that's why, again, you've had a sell-off. Is there or should there be an increased risk premium? I would say yes, compared to what there was, but we're probably there already. But then when we assess our investments, that has to be borne in mind. And the other thing I think that's important is that if you look at the concentration in some of the indices of these companies, they get up to huge levels. So if you look at mega cap technology companies, I think they got up to about 35% of the Chinese indices. And that means that you have a very concentrated portfolio. My view as a long-term investor is that you want to protect your risk through diversification. And that's another lesson that I think potentially was left behind. So when you're an investor, you look at emerging markets, I see fantastic opportunity. I see growth within them that you can't find in a lot of the developed world. I see companies very well placed to benefit from that, but you have to create a diversified portfolio if you're not willing to take incredibly high risks. Thank you. Um, Abby, as somebody who, who thinks about um, investing at a, a sort of strategic or asset allocation level, um, have recent events in China changed how you look at uh, emerg- emerging markets and how you'll do that in the future? So emerging markets will always remain, uh, especially the emerging markets now in China, India and Brazil and all these players, they are integral to the growth in the economy. They're, they're, we, they, we look to them as not only like sellers, but also consumers contributing to the growth of this. However, given that market with, with the with the recent QEs of the world, it has been the cash has been flowing into uh, everywhere and people have just been buying beta without doing research. And I think I'm in, in, I'm in the same boat as Mark and saying that emerging markets are called emerging markets because there is a reason for it that, that you have to do your due diligence and research and not just buy go and buy an ETF or an index or and then hope to uh, reap windfall benefits. So if, if, it, if it does that, then like Mark alluded to, is that you have tech companies, you have very high sector concentration. But if one wants to invest in emerging markets or China, there is a case that there should be experienced capable investors who are scouring the markets looking for opportunities and investing in them rather than just taking a brush and uh, buying beta in a mechanical way so while this can last periodically in in terms of in times of upheaval like we are watching now there'll be no no uh, protection against that risk so it, it has to be done in a nuanced investigative way so that you're aware of the risk that you're taking and you're building a portfolio to take care of all the risks and create a better diversified portfolio. Thank you for that, Abhi. And thank you to Mark Williams, Emerging Markets Equity Fund Manager at Somerset Capital, and Abhi Chatterjee, Chief Investment Strategist and Investment Research Provider, Dynamic Planner. And thank you all for listening. Tune in next time for the next edition of the FT Advisor podcast. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.